as you're being seated, let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for, uh, Lord, the opportunity to be in church on Christmas Eve. And I thank you for our wonderful band and our worship. And I thank you for this time in our calendar every year where we stop. Uh, and, Lord, we focus on others. We remember what the Apostle Paul said at this time of year. It's, it's more blessed to give than receive. And, Lord, as uh, so many of us have give and already given and received, uh, and we'll do so tonight and tomorrow and all throughout the week, Lord, we just pray that, uh, that you'll help us reflect on the, the truth behind this season. Lord, a little baby born in Bethlehem uh, that was the greatest gift, the, the greatest present that was ever given to any of us. And Lord, as we study your word tonight and as we focus uh, on this legend of a man, a man we now know as Santa Claus, uh, God, I pray that, uh, that our hearts will remember uh, to be trained and encouraged how to live for you. We love you. Wissy sings in your name tonight. And everyone said together, Amen. It was the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Now, that not, might not be true of my house tonight, and it might not be true of yours tonight, but it was that famous poem that actually wasn't originally entitled The Night Before Christmas. It was actually titled A Visit from St. Nicholas that was written by Clement Clark Moore in 1822. He was a professor of biblical learning at Columbia University, and he had been asked by the state of New York to write basically a story of, of, of Christmas that people could tell to their kids to help them remember the true meaning of Christmas. So he talked about a man named St. Nicholas. He didn't in this poem call him Santa Claus, but he talked about a visit from St. Nick, and for the first time ever, St. Nick was described as a man who had flying reindeer. And in his poem, Clement Clark Moore made up some names for these flying reindeer to, to, flying reindeer to tell his children. For the first time, he was talked about uh, being an overweight man who had a belly that was so big. Uh, Clement Clark Moore said when he laughed, his whole belly shook like a belly full of, remember what it was? Jelly. He had rosy cheeks and a twinkle in his eye. He came down the chimney, filled up the stockings. He put gifts under the tree, and then with a, just a, a glance and a word, he was off into the night. The night before Christmas... That poem caught on so much in the state of New York that they asked a famous artist, the man who had designed the donkey for the Republican Party and the elephant for the, for, or, uh, the, donkey for the Democrat, Democratic Party and the elephant for the Republican Party. They asked him to take the poem and they said, could you draw us a picture of what Santa Claus would look like if we could see Santa Claus? And he took and he drew this picture of what we now know as Santa Claus. If you study the history of the United States, you know that New York was first founded uh, and first called New Amsterdam. It was founded by a group of Dutchmen. And these Dutchmen had a Catholic saint that they revered, really a Catholic saint that was more revered than any Catholic saint in the world, except Jesus' mother Mary for more than 2,000 years. His name was St. Nicholas. And if you've studied the true story of St. Nicholas, Nicholas was a boy who was born and very early in life, both of his parents were killed and he grew up an orphan, a very wealthy orphan. He would inherit when he turned 18, uh, by our standards today, tens of millions of dollars. But his parents both die and as an orphan, he was raised by his, by his uncle and his aunt. And when he turned 18 and he inherited all his money, he felt a strange pull and call to the ministry. And he decided that instead of basically taking his inheritance and living his life, that he was going to sell it all and he was going to give it all away. And he became this pastor who was known for taking this large amount of money that he had and finding people in need and helping them. 
The stories were told of this man who became a saint in the Catholic Church, St. Nicholas, that he would go from town to town and he would sneak into orphanages at night and where the kids' socks were drying by the fireplace because they didn't have washers and dryers and the only place where things could be dried was by the firelight. He would take and he'd drop coins and candy and oranges in the stockings that were hung by the fireplace. The greatest legend of St. Nicholas, a true story, was in the town that he grew up in. There was a family who had three daughters who needed to be married and because their mom and dad couldn't pay a dowry to be married these three daughters were going to be sold into slavery so he gave them tens of thousands of dollars each one of these women so they could be married and not raised in slavery and as he was moved into sainthood by the catholic church he became the patron saint of the dutch community so when they came and established new amsterdam and then turned it into new york their patron saint was saint nicholas who became after this poem and a little bit of artistry santa claus And now here we are more than 170 years later and Santa Claus is still one of the most popular figures in American history and certainly in the American calendar. But there's been this thought lately that Christians shouldn't celebrate Santa Claus. Christians shouldn't believe in Santa Clauses. Christians shouldn't talk about Santa Claus. And if you look at the front of your program today, and by the way, on the back of your program, we've got our sermon notes so you can take these out uh, and you can fill these out. We gave you a pen as you came in. Uh, But if you look at the front of your your program, you'll see a, a, a message claiming why I believe in Santa Claus. You know, I believe in Santa Claus because he was real. Uh, now, the name Santa Claus is, is an interesting pronunciation of St. Nicholas. The Dutch turned St. Nicholas and actually called him St. Nicholas instead of St. Nicholas. But Santa Claus was a real person who did great things. And he lives on in our mind today as a man of great virtue, someone who cares about others at a time around Christmas when maybe nobody does. You know, I believe in Santa Claus for the same reason I believe that George Washington threw a silver dollar across the Potomac River. You know, I was taught that in school, that the great commander, George Washington, uh, during the Revolutionary War, threw a silver dollar all the way across the Potomac River. And I believed that until I saw the Potomac River as an adult, and I thought, there's no way. But it's a story to teach us the virtue of who George Washington was as America's first great leader. And I believe for the longest time that Abraham Lincoln never told a lie because I was told that he was honest Abe, and he couldn't tell a lie. But then as I grew up and I turned into an adult and I realized that everyone lies every now and then, I thought, you know what, honest Abe probably wasn't always so honest, but the virtue of this man's integrity and character lives in the folklore of his story, honest Abe. You know, I learned just the other day that, uh, that uh, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember his name, who was the, Benjamin Franklin wasn't really struck by lightning while holding a kite. Yet I was told in school, I remember even the little political cartoons that we saw of Benjamin Franklin founding electricity when he was struck by a lightning out flying a kite. Now, he did scientific experiments with kites, but he was never struck by lightning. But we were taught to remember the virtue of the great patents and discoveries he made by, by a cartoonish figure that would lock something in our mind forever. And I believe in Santa Claus because of the great virtue that it teaches us about the real man, St. Nicholas. A man who was a Christian and who lived his lives to make sure that others were taken care of as well as he had been taken care of in his life, especially orphan children. And if you study his life carefully and single single women and single moms, he had a real heart to make sure they were always taken care of. That's why it struck me as so interesting. Maybe you heard the other day that a second grade teacher in, in Rockland County, New York, was chastised by her school because she got up in front of her entire class of second graders and they were doing a a geography lesson on the North Pole. And one of the kids spoke up in her class and said, that's where Santa lives. 
And the second grade teacher told her class of seven and eight-year-olds, there's no such thing as Santa. There's no such thing as Santa. If I were to speak to that teacher, I would say, listen, liar, there is. Listen, listen, dummy, have you ever studied history? There certainly is. Get your encyclopedia and look up St. Nicholas. There certainly is such thing as Santa Claus and the virtue of a child going to bed tonight and believing that someone cares enough about them and knows them and knows whether they've been good or bad and it's going to bring them presents. And when they wake up, they're going to be under the tree. I love that. And I'll celebrate that as long as my kids want to celebrate that. And, and when they're ready, I'll tell them about the real St. Nicholas and I'll teach them why they should celebrate Santa Claus. But who is this lady, the Grinch? You know, I, I love that movie, The Grinch. You know, on, on, uh, a few weeks ago, we, we had a family movie night and we watched The Grinch. And I love The Grinch, the, the one with Jim Carrey. It's, a, it's an incredible movie. And do you remember kind of the star character in the movie, the only person who cared about The Grinch? Her name was Cindy Lou Who. Cindy Lou Who. And Cindy Lou Who cared about The Grinch when no one else cared about The Grinch. Cindy Lou Who cared about The Grinch because she believed that he should be loved too, even though his heart had shrunk so small. The Grinch should be loved on Christmas too. Cindy Lou Who, who grew up in Whoville. You know, I want to ask the question, who, tonight as we look at our Bible study time. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Because I want to ask the question, who, tonight. And here's my question in our Bible study time before we partake of communion. And I want to talk to you about that before we go and leave and celebrate Christmas together. I want to ask the question, who? Who was changed at Christmas? And if you don't have a Bible tonight, we love at our church to give out Bibles. We want you to have one. If you don't have one or if you forgot one tonight, if you just want to borrow one, our ushers are coming down the aisle. Just wave at them. They'll give you a Bible so that you can follow along tonight. If you have your own Bible at home, you can throw this on the table when you leave. If you don't keep this, it's yours to keep. We've given away more than 150 Bibles since our church started 15 weeks ago. Uh, and we just we want people to have a copy of God's Word in case they ever want to read it and so that they can have it as we study Scripture together uh, in our church on Sunday mornings. And we're in Luke chapter 2, studying the story of the very first Christmas and asking that question as we reflect on Cindy Lou Who. Who was changed at Christmas? It's an interesting list of people that were changed at Christmas. Who was changed at Christmas? The story starts this way in Luke chapter 2. By the way, Luke was not a disciple. Luke was not even a, a, a Jew, the group of people who followed Jesus around. Luke was a historian. The, the book of Luke, more than any other book, is just a history book. He includes in it lots of names and titles and places because he's a historian. But he also became a believer of Jesus Christ, and he studied the history of Jesus' birth that first Christmas. And here's what he said. We'll start in verse 2 or verse 1, and we'll go all the way through verse 7 and then stop and ask our question who was changed at Christmas? In those days, Caesar Augustus, that was the Roman emperor, Luke, as a historian, is letting us know who's in charge of the world at the time, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up. From the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. So we've just been given a, a geographic region. We've been given the name of a county. We've been given the name of kind of a township. We've been given the name of a town. Nazareth, Galilee, Judea, Bethlehem. To the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for a baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Now, if you want to know what made the first Christmas so special, it was just that event right there. A baby was born. And the baby who was born would change the world. But you say, who specifically, that first Christmas, who specifically was changed? I'm glad you asked that question, and I want to share the answers with you tonight. And and some of it might surprise you. You know, as we study the birth of Jesus, we find out that the first people who were changed at Christmas were the skeptical people. And just like there are skeptical people today, maybe just purely skeptical, maybe agnostic, maybe atheist, they call themselves lots of things, but there are people who who don't have a firm belief in God or maybe no belief in God. They don't have much of a, uh, of a belief of a following in Jesus or a specific religion, but, but they're into spiritual things and they check them all out. And as we study through the scriptures in Matthew chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, but if you have your Bible, you can. It'll be on the screen behind me, just a few pages over to our left. In Matthew chapter 2, we read about a group of, of skeptical men who were living in the Middle East at the time Jesus was born. They were, you, you could say they were studying world religions. They heard what was going on in Bethlehem and they came to check it out. Now I want to say this. They did not come to worship Jesus. They did not come to believe in Jesus. They just came to see what was going on because they had heard something was going on. But these were people who were skeptics. These, these would not be people we call God followers or Christians or whatever you want to call it. These were skeptics who just they checked out a little bit of everything spiritually. And in Matthew chapter 2, we're, we're told through the voice now of Matthew another story about Jesus being born. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, that was the king of, of Israel, magi, we always call them wise men or we call them kings. The Bible never calls them kings. The Bible calls them magi. They were basically thinkers. These were university professors. These were not men who ruled countries. Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and everyone in Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, all the religious people, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. So Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I can go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of him until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, key thought right there, verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, if you read carefully who these guys were, it said that one day they were in the east is where they came from. We would imagine that they were from modern day Iraq or Iran or Saudi Arabia. If you look on a map, those are the only really places east of Israel. And it said one night they were studying the stars. If you read carefully, they saw the star. They were not reading their Bibles. They were not having Bible study. Uh, They were not at a uh, church service. They were studying the stars. Now, we would call the study of the stars astronomy. When you add a study of the stars for the purpose of finding out religious things, we would call it astrology. And we would talk about zodiac signs. Uh, some of you are in here, you, you don't really study, you, you know, you don't read every day your zodiac sign in the paper, but you know what yours is. How many of you know what your zodiac sign is? Like, I'm an Aquarius. 
And, I, you know, five or six times in my life I have read what is supposed to happen, and every time I'm supposed to start a new relationship in the next two or three months. I, I mean, I think they just kind of shift those things around. But that's who these guys were. These, these guys wrote like the Zodiac column for the local paper. They studied the stars, and they tried to determine times and seasons in life and eternity. They, you know, they were just, they were just kind of skeptical you know, study a little science, study a little this, study a little world religion, and all of a sudden they're studying the stars, and there's this star that stands out more than the others. And they think, what is, what's that? What's up with that? So they start going through their history books where, where they studied at their university, and they found in their history book that a man named Daniel had spent some time in their community, and he had talked about Daniel and Jeremiah and some of these great Ezekiel, some of the prophets of Israel had talked about. A savior that would come to Israel who, who would be a king. And it talked about how there would, there would be a clear sign of that happening. And they saw this star and thought, maybe that's him. So the Bible says they loaded up their camels. And they took probably a 500-mile journey across the desert. And they got to Israel. And they went to Herod and said, hey, where's the kid? Where's the kid? We heard a kid was born. We saw a star. We were studying the stars. We were worshiping the stars. We like to kind of study everything. We're into a little bit of everything. Where's the kid? Herod told them where the kid was, so they went to find the kid. And they, they got to the baby. They gave him their gifts, but something happened along the way. Somewhere either on the way there, somewhere between Herod and Bethlehem, maybe the night in Bethlehem, between Bethlehem and going back to Herod, an angel appeared to him, and an angel said this, Hey, guys, this is the real deal. You've been searching all your life for who God is and what God is. And if he really loves you, and if he'll really reveal himself to you, if you study the history of humanity, humanity has been looking for God, for understanding, for intelligence. I mean, since the beginning of time, history's been trying to figure out the bigger picture. And God told these men, this baby is it, and you can believe. These were skeptical men who'd been searching all their life, who were just there to check it out. They weren't there really to worship, but something happened along the way where they were told they could put their faith in Jesus as God's son and that it could change their life forever. And what they did shows you how much they believed. Instead of going back to Herod, a king of a country who had the power to kill them, they snuck off in another direction and said, we're going to trust more in Jesus as being the true king of the world than Herod and just trust that Jesus is going to protect us. Say, who told him an angel did? If we were to ask them what happened... Well, what happened? If you were to ask the wise men, if you were to ask these skeptical people what happened on their first Christmas, their answer would be, well, God, he really did reveal himself. We'd been looking our whole life, trying to figure things out, but God in this baby really did reveal himself. But it took an angel, it took a messenger to tell them what they, what they couldn't know. It took someone in a different position spiritually to tell them what they could believe in spiritually. And you know what? A lot of times we have people in our life who would love to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They'd love to believe that God loves them. They'd love to believe that God could forgive them and give them a second chance. But there's a barrier in their life called skepticism that doesn't let them believe that. And every now and then they need an angel to come alongside and say, you know what? And I'm not talking about a, a real spiritual angel. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a preacher. Sometimes it's a neighbor. Someone, sometimes it's just someone who says, listen, you can believe. You can trust this. You know, over Thanksgiving, I was visiting my mom and dad who live uh, just south of Chicago. Uh, and I was, uh, my, my dad, every time I go up there, there, there's usually some kind of task that he has for me. 
uh, and he had started painting his house, knowing that there was no way he could, on the outside of his house, knowing there's no way he could finish it by himself, but knowing I was coming. So when I got there, I would see it and say, Dad, no way you're going to finish that, and I would offer to help, and he'd let me finish painting the house while, uh, you know, he went off and did whatever he was doing. And that, that scenario played itself out. Uh, and I'm up the day after Thanksgiving, and I'm on a huge, like a 30-foot extension ladder, and I, I'm, I'm painting right by the, uh, right where there's a fence. My dad has an eight-foot kind of privacy fence, uh, and I'm right beside the fence, and I'm painting under the awning of the house, like right where the gutters hit the house. I'm trimming in that awning with some paint, uh, and I've been out there for hours, and I'm tired, and my shoulders are sore, and my hands are sore, uh, and I'm up there painting, and my two kids come running around the side of the house. They've been inside watching cartoons. Uh, and it was cold. I mean, it was warm enough to paint, but pretty chilly. It was probably 42, 45. It had been raining the day before. The, the grass was wet and muddy. And here come my two children, 10 years old and 8 years old, in their pajama pants, their pajama tops, no shoes, no socks, crying their eyes out around the house. Dad, Dad, Dad. And I'm up, I'm up on a ladder and I said, what? I said, Dad, Rudy's dead. And Rudy is our, is our dog. Um, you know, and, and uh, he, some of you would not consider him a real dog because he's, he's very small. Um, he's, uh, yeah, there he is right there. That's, that's Rudy. And what had happened is the door had been left open to the house, and Rudy, the only thing I've been able to train Rudy to do is when a door is open to race out of it as fast as he can and run all over the neighborhood. That's the only training skill that I have. And then I chase him around the neighborhood with a bag of chips, uh, you know, trying to get him to come back and eat potato chips with me. That's the only skill that my dog has other than being really cute. But, you know, I've got this little fake dog because Daniel won't let me get a big dog. Um, and he run, he, the, And the kids think that he's gone and that he's dead. And they are so attached to this little dog. I mean, he's like their little brother. And they're standing in the wet grass, and they're all muddy, and they're crying, Dad, Rudy's dead. What are we going to do? He's gone. The door's open. Nobody knows where he is. We've been calling for him all over the house. And I look down, because I'm 30 feet up. And I look down into the backyard, and Rudy is laying in a pile of leaves in the backyard on his back with his four feet straight up in the air, just having a fun time out in the backyard in a fence all by himself. And I said, Guys, Rudy's not dead. Dad, yes, he's gone. I said, guys, I can see him. He's right there. No, Dad, he's gone. See, the fence was, they couldn't see through the fence. But I was above the fence. And I said, guys, trust me. You can't see him. But he's right there. I'm looking at him. See, I'm higher than you, so I can tell you, trust me, he's right there. Go through the house. Go into the backyard. You'll find him just where I told you he was. And they did. And you know what? Some of you would love to put your faith in Jesus. Some of you would love to follow God. Some of you would love to reengage spiritually. But there's something blocking your way. You say, I just can't believe that it's true. And every now and then you need somebody to come along who's on a ladder who can say, listen, you can do this. Jesus, he is real. I've seen him. I've experienced him. He's changed my life. You can't see it right now. But if you will take the journey that I'm telling you to take and get to where you need to be, he's right there. And he can change your life forever. That's what happened to the skeptical. They were told by somebody who had a higher view than they did that Jesus really was who he said he was and he could change your life forever. The skeptical were changed forever at Christmas. Who else was changed? According to the Bible, the outcast were changed. In Luke chapter 2, if you held your place in your Bible, we read about a group of people who weren't welcome anywhere in Israel. People who were not given a chance spiritually because of the kind of life that they lived. 
The church had told them, you're not good enough, you're not clean enough, you're not spiritual enough. You really can't be a part of what we're doing. Yet the outcast found a home. The outcast found acceptance at Christmas time. You say, who are they? Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Remember verses 1 through 7 where the story of Jesus being born. It says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. And they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ. If you have a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, circle that word Christ. He is Christ the Lord. And this is going to be a sign to you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they, see, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen just as they had been told. Now, what's really interesting about the shepherds being invited to this Christmas party is that the shepherds were not invited to anything. And it's interesting what they were invited to see. They were invited in verse 11 to come and see the Christ. Now, you and I, if we've grown up in church but not studied it deeply, we believe that Jesus' last name is Christ. Like if he played for the Chiefs, the back of his jersey would say Christ. But that wasn't his name. It wasn't his first name, middle name, last name. It was a title. The word Christ actually means Messiah. The word Messiah is a Jewish word that actually means Savior. That's all that it meant. Basically, they were told that the Savior of the world had been born and they were invited to his baby shower. Now, here's what's so interesting about shepherds. Shepherds weren't even invited to church. The Jewish religion, if you've studied the Jewish religion carefully, the Jewish religion is one that's built on separation from God. If you study the Old Testament and the way the temple was built, there was a room in the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could go in, and he could only go there once a year. Everyone else was separated, and even he was separated from God 364 days of the year. Outside the Holy of Holies was what was called the holiest place, and only the priests were allowed to go there. They could go there every day, but only the priests. Just a regular guy who went to church wasn't allowed to go in the holiest place because he was separated from that. From that. And then outside the holiest place was kind of an inner court of the, of the, of the Jews. And only Jewish people could go in there who were ceremonially, ceremonially clean. Everyone else was separated from that. And then outside that was the court of the Gentiles. And there was like four levels of security you had to get to to ever get to go see God. And only one guy was allowed to do that and only once a day. It was a religion built on separation. And because the shepherds were with livestock, according to the Old Testament, they were always ceremonially unclean, which means what? They were never even allowed to go to church. They would have been stopped at the doors of the church by a greeter who looked at them and said, uh, you can't come. You're not ceremonially clean. You've been hanging out with the livestock. You're dirty. You smell. You, 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 know, you, you work with unclean animals. You can't come to church. I can't come to church. No, you can't come to church. Well, can I see God? You can't even get close to God. You're not even allowed in the building. And these shepherds were people who never had an opportunity to worship God. And here now they were invited to go see God. 
And they thought, wow, here we are, the outcast of society. You know, there are a lot of people in this community who, who would consider themselves outcast when it comes to church. You know, I can't go to church. That church doesn't want me. That church doesn't like people like me. That church does, you know, doesn't, doesn't like people who do what I've done. That church doesn't want people who have the hang-ups and the addictions and the habits that I have. And they just they consider themselves an outcast. And on Christmas, God reached out to the outcast and said, this is for you. Come and be a part of it. And it's interesting because it said that the only way the outcast were ever brought to see Jesus is they heard about him. They saw what was happening and they were told. Somebody went to them. Somebody went to them and said, you're invited to come be a part of what God has planned for your life. They would have never shown up on their own. And you know what? This Christmas Eve, every one of you has someone in your life. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker that in their own head considers themselves an outcast. They'll never go to any church just because they're embarrassed. And they need someone to tell them and to show them and to invite them and say, you can come to church and have your life changed by God. So I'm an outcast. You're invited. At Christmas, the outcast was changed. If you were to ask the shepherds what had happened, they probably would have said something like, God accepts us. For the first time in my life, I heard that God accepted me just the way I was, dirty from the animals, working the job that I worked, a lower class individual on the income schedule. God accepts me. If you'd ask the wise men, hey, what did that first, first Christmas mean to you? They said, God, God's real. Jesus was real. If you'd ask the, the shepherds, what did first Christmas mean to you? They would have said, we're accepted. And maybe nobody else accepts me, but God accepts me. But then there were, was a third crowd which was an interesting crowd. I just refer to them as the faithful. They were people who lived their life to do everything right and really had done everything right, but hadn't had the greatest blessings in life as a result of that. They were people who would look at what, uh, what we would call spiritual karma, and they would say, you know what, we really got the raw end of the deal. Like we did everything right and got everything wrong. And I believe there are a lot of faithful people like, and I'm not going to read all the text, but in Scripture they're referred to as Simeon and Anna. They were both older people whose, whose lives were well behind them, but who were still trying to live their life for God. And these were older people who wondered deep down if maybe they'd missed it. They wondered deep down if maybe all their faithfulness to God was in vain. Who wondered deep down if maybe all the promises of the Bible really weren't true. These were faithful people who, you know, like maybe you and I sometimes, we wonder, you know, I did everything right and my marriage fell apart. I did everything right and my parents got cancer. I did everything right and I lost my job. I was faithful. I did things the right way. And then everything went wrong for me. And even the most devout Christian would begin to wonder, is God real? Does he care? Is there hope? And this was Simeon, and this was Anna. And the Bible says that after Jesus was born on the eighth day, his mom and dad took him to the temple to dedicate him. And both Simeon and Anna were there that day. Anna was a widow. Her husband died when they had, after they had just been married a short time. Her husband died, and she never got remarried. Simeon was an old man who lived in the temple, and they had both been told that before they died, they would, they would be able to see God's glory, and they would be able to understand that God was real and that the things God said he was going to do, he was going to do. But they have both never seen that happen in their life. Both of them at the point where they're getting ready to die, wondering if they could trust God. And in walks Mary and Joseph with little baby Jesus. And both of them 
responded with this type of thought. Simeon actually said, now I can die in peace. It's all real. What I was told, what I believed, what I sometimes wondered if it was true, it was real. Anna had a similar comment. My eyes have finally seen the Lord's salvation. I've been waiting all my life. And it's real. You know, I believe if you were to ask the faithful what happened for them on that very first Christmas, they would say something like this. We realize that our faithfulness was not in vain. We realize that doing the right thing, living the right way, going to church, giving money, going on mission trips, living the way the Bible told us to live, we realized even when everything was against us that it wasn't in vain. God was who he said he was, and he really loved us like he said he loved us. It's interesting. I don't know if you heard two weeks ago that the, uh, one of the youngest and smallest babies to ever be born in the United States was released from the hospital. About 16 weeks ago, uh, a little baby, Melinda Star Guido from California, was born at 24 weeks. She was 9.1 ounces. She didn't even weigh a pound. Fit inside the palm of your hand. There, there she is, nine ounces. Said she was the size of a can of Coke, and she made it. They kept her in the hospital for 14 weeks, and at 38 weeks when she should have been born, they released her from the hospital the first time. And they think she's going to be okay and live a healthy life. They're calling her the miracle baby. The baby who survived when nobody thought that it would. And you know what, medically speaking, certainly is a miracle baby. Born at 24 weeks and made it. But the true miracle baby, the baby who changed everything, was Jesus. And he was born at Christmas. And whether you're a skeptic or whether you consider yourself an outcast or whether you've been faithful and you're wondering if it's worth it anymore, the miracle baby Jesus can change everything. Yeah, I had something really interesting happen to me last night. Um, I was on the way home. Danielle and I had been spending some time out of town for Christmas. And I was on the way home. I was between Clinton, Missouri and Harrisonville on 7 Highway. Some of you have taken that trip, about 11 p.m. Uh, and I almost got hit uh, by a high-speed car chase um, that cops were chasing this guy. It was like the most unbelievable. I thought, man, I'm going to be on cops. I mean, it, you know, it was like unbelievable. You know, I'm driving up the highway. Uh, I'm on either 13 or 7. It's called the same thing there for a stretch of time. I was kind of driving along, and it's, a, it's four lanes, but no median. And I'm in the left-hand lane, uh, you know, speed limit's 65, so I was going, you know, maybe, maybe a little faster than that. Uh, in the left-hand lane, maybe, maybe not. Uh, it's none of your business. Um, but, uh, but we, you know, we were traveling up, and I caught out of the corner of my eye, I don't know, a half mile up or so, I saw this car driving parallel to the highway I was on, and I saw it approaching the highway, and it was going really, really fast. And, I mean, as I was watching it, I was just kind of thinking in my mind as I was driving, there's no way this guy's going to be able to slow down and make this turn. And as he, kept, as he was getting closer to the highway, he just kept going faster and faster. So I started to put on my brakes because I thought he's going to go literally right across the highway and hit someone. And I was afraid that he was just going to hit the side of my car and, and kill me. So I started slowing down as he approached the highway, and he, he didn't go straight across the highway. He actually came onto the highway, into my lane of traffic, and then started at me at 60-plus miles an hour. I mean, flying. So I put on the brakes, 
start edging over into the right lane. He's still coming at me. Got off the road onto the shoulder. He's still coming at me. And then zoom, he flies by me. And then after him, cop car number one, zoom, cop car number two, zoom. And I thought, man, it's like the Dukes of Hazard, You know, and I, I thought, man, I'm glad the cops weren't chasing him. I'd have to, I'd have to go make a citizen's arrest. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd go get him as if that has ever worked in the history of, of mankind, somebody making a citizen's arrest. But my heart was like, for, for the next five minutes, was like beating out of my chest because the adrenaline was cranking so much. And I'm thinking, man, what if I wouldn't have seen him? Or what if he wouldn't have finally veered off? Or what if there had been somebody in the right-hand lane? Or, you know, what if, what if, what if? And, you know, my kids are in the back of the car sleeping, and I, I'm just imagining all the horrible scenarios that could have happened. Man, what if we'd have been killed? Who would have come to my funeral? Would they have made me wear a tie in the casket? I mean, all those important things that, uh, you know, that, that aren't even important. You know, and I'm just rolling through these things in my head. And as I, you know, as I was thinking about that the rest of the way home, and, man, you talk about, like, dodging headlights every time you see someone come towards you for the rest of the night. I realized there's one thing that I never thought about, never even worried about, never even considered. Not one time in those moments after that experience did I think, man, if I would have died, would I have gone to heaven? Because that has been settled in my mind because of this baby born at Christmas. Not once did I even think about what happens after death, where I go after death, if I'm okay with God or not okay with God. Not one time did I even question that because of what Jesus has done in my life. And, you know, I got a, uh, I got a call. One of, the, one of the pastors who mentors me is a, is a pastor named Daniel Floyd in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And he called me today on the way to church. And uh, he said, man, I just want to pray for you. Can I pray? And uh, I said, yeah, I pray. And while he was praying, he made this statement. He said, he said uh, God... Help Christian preach uh, like today is the last day that anyone at his church will live on planet Earth. And I thought, man, that's a great statement. What if today would be the last day that you lived on planet Earth? What if on the way home some psycho jotted across the highway in front of you and you didn't see it and you didn't make it? And tonight you entered eternity. You know, of all the crazy things you would wonder about, do you have settled that you don't have to wonder about where you would spend eternity because you know you're going to heaven? You don't wonder, you know you're going to heaven because this baby named Jesus that was born, you you believe in him? You believe he can change your life? You believe that he can forgive you and you've put your trust in him? Because if you've not done that, the greatest thing you can do for yourself this Christmas Eve, and listen, I hope we all live another 50 plus years But the greatest thing that any of us can do is get that settled in our mind. That one day this life is over and we begin another one. And there should never be any question about what that next one looks like. Because Jesus, because he was born, has settled that for us if we will accept it. Like these wise men did. Like these shepherds did. Like Anna and Simeon did. Our life can be changed. Who can be changed? You can be changed at Christmas time. Will you bow your heads and pray with me this evening? God, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name. And Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name because we really do believe that Jesus was your son. At least I do. And I believe that he was born in Bethlehem. And I believe what the Bible says about his life. And God, I could have never seen it on my own. There, there was a fence of skepticism in my life. I would have never been able to see the truth of Jesus. But I believe what the Bible tells us, that he was your son, that he lived 
Lord, that he did some unbelievable miracles, proving himself to be divine. God, that he was crucified, that he was buried, but that he rose again and told his disciples, I'm going to come back again. And I'm going to take everyone who believes in me to be with me where I am to heaven. And God, I pray for the men and the women and the teenagers and the children in this congregation today. Because God, none of us is ever going to have all of life figured out. But we can, by faith, have the afterlife figured out. We can question a lot of things in life, but we can get to the point where we don't question what happens after we die. Because we leave that up to God. And we leave that up to Jesus. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in this room tonight, and if tonight would be the last night that you would live on planet Earth, and you don't know for sure that after you died, if you'd spend an eternity in heaven, because you've never put your faith in Jesus and said, God, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he came to to forgive me of my sins. I believe he can change me and I believe he can give me eternal life. Then you can do that right now tonight before you leave. So Christian, I can't see it that clearly like you can. Trust me. I'm up on the ladder spiritually tonight and I can see past your fence and I can tell you that Jesus is real and you can trust it. I know it in my heart. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this room tonight and tonight you want to put your faith in Jesus, become a Christian, And know for sure when you leave this place that when you die, one day you're going to spend an eternity in heaven with him. And I just want you to pray this prayer. You don't even have to pray it out loud. I'm going to pray it for you in case you don't know what to pray. And you can just pray it in your heart. The Bible says that God hears the prayers of our heart. Tonight God will hear you. He'll save you and change you. Just pray this prayer. Dear God, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe he was born at Christmas time to change my life. And I ask you today to forgive me of my sin, the things that I've done wrong that you would not want me to do. And I ask you to begin to change me from the inside out to make me who you want me to be. And I ask you to secure a spot in heaven for me that one day when I die, I will have no doubt where I'll spend eternity because I've placed that in your hands and you're going to take care of that for me. Today, God, I want to become a Christian for the rest of my life. I want to try to live for you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, please, nobody looking around out of the respect for those around you. If you just prayed that prayer this evening, just became a Christian, would you just slip your hand up just so that I, just so that I can know it this evening? Just slip your hand up quietly and down quietly just so I can know tonight you prayed with me. And Father, we just pray for those who are here tonight that we would remember not just Santa Claus, who's a great virtue to remember, but Jesus, who's a great Savior to love at this Christmas time. And God, as we prepare this evening to take communion, remember who you are and what you did, I pray that you will solidify in our mind what you've done in our life, how much you love us. And on the days when we're skeptical, remind us you are who you said you are. On the days that we feel like an outcast, remind us that we're accepted. On the days we wonder if our faithfulness has been worth it, remind us that it has been. God, change our lives and allow this church change this community and touch hurting people. We love you. Let's see things in Jesus' name and everyone said together, amen. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do right before we take communion this evening.